0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Well, we've done it. We've reached the end of the Oximite period. Now, some people have asked me if we were planning on continuing our examination of Ethiopia past the Oximite period, and if we would extend our reach into the Zagwe and Solomonic periods. And the answer is no, at least not for the foreseeable future. While the Horn of Africa is personally my favorite area of the continent to study, this is the History of Africa podcast not the History of the Horn of Africa podcast. So, so moving on is in order if the rest of the continent is to receive any sort of attention. But, rather than leaving you guys hanging, like I admittedly kind of did last season, I figured it would be a good idea to have a final episode to examine what happens after the fall of Oxum, and, as promised, just sort of answer any unresolved questions that you guys, the audience, have before we finally close the book on Oxum, and announce our destination for Season 3 of the History of Africa podcast. Episode 30. Closing the book, and Season 3 announcement. Now, because I'm sure that this is what most of you listening care about the most, let's get the announcement part of this episode out of the way early. Now, Season 3 was determined by a vote on this podcast's Patreon page, as will all future seasons, and after a very close vote, it came out to like just one or two votes, it was ridiculously close, Season 3 will focus on the Ashanti Empire. This West African empire of the early modern period became the dominant power of the forests of modern Ghana and became a military power that could go toe-to-toe with anyone. In fact, they even defeated the British Empire in not just one, but in multiple wars. So, with that announced, let's move on to today's episode. Well, actually, not really. First, I want to address the weird upload schedule here. This episode isn't coming out during the normal time slot of every Monday, every two weeks. Uh, what's with that? Well, frankly, this episode's kind of a weird one. It's a lot shorter than the normal episodes, and it doesn't really follow the normal format. It's a lot, like, podcast you know? So I figured that instead of setting back the schedule, I'd just upload this one ahead of time and get it over with, and then upload the first episode of Season 3 this upcoming Monday. And yeah, I realize this kind of interferes with the Q&A schedule I laid out, so if you had a question that you were planning on asking and it didn't make it on time for this episode, I'll do my best to answer it in a blog post when the Season 3 pilot comes out. Okay, now, uh, let's begin for real. So, before we get to listener questions, let's just recap everything that happened at the end of this season. The Empire of Oxum, weakened from centuries of internal strife, plague, and out-competition by emerging rivals in trade, was in a permanent state of gradual decline until really the late 9th century. That The frontiers of the empire gradually receded, while state functions became gradually more and more dominated by the nobility and especially by the church. However, at the very end of the 9th century, Negus Degnijan, in a last hurrah of Oxumite power, reorganized the state through ingenious political maneuvering, reestablished royal power, and began to recapture lost Oxumite territories, and even sometimes expanded Oxumite frontiers further than they had ever been before. However, this intense period of expansion attracted the attention and concern of Oxum's neighbors. Eventually, after Degnijan died, a dispute involving his sons and the church further weakened the Aksumite state allowing a coalition of Oxum's neighboring peoples to invade and conquer the kingdom under the banner of Gudit, a disgraced member of the Oxumite royal family. And, after a period of, ra- of ravaging and devastating warfare throughout the Oxumite realm, Gudit put an end to the empire by systemically killing off, or depending on who you believe, killing off almost all of the Oxumite royal lineage. The empire was officially dead. So, in the last episode, we briefly touched on what happened after Gudit's reign ended. Many of Aksum's neighbors expanded into the abandoned frontier territories of the empire, while the inner core of the empire fell into the hands of the Zagwe dynasty. The Zagwe, depending on who you believe, either were descended from the Aksumite general, who fought to defend the empire against Gudit, or were a later descendant of Gudit's lineage themselves. The Zagwe dynasty is one of the most poorly understood parts of Ethiopian history, to the point that even the century when it started is up for debate. It was a Christian empire which based its capital in the city of Lalibela, and was the dynasty most famous for the construction of the beautiful monolithic churches found in Lalibela today. Pictures posted on the blog, of course, they're truly a sight to behold. Anyways, the Zagwe dynasty was later destabilized by the rising tide of a kingdom from the south known as Dhamit, not to be confused with the earlier pre-Oxmite kingdom. This empire, also poorly understood, rose sometime in the 12th century in the south of Ethiopia, and it began and began aggressively expanding northwards into the territory of the Zagwe kingdom and the Sultanate of Shoah. While Zagwe and Showa did eventually form an alliance together and defeated Damit, they were badly damaged by the conflict. Eventually, an Amhara nobleman named Yakuno Amlak, claiming descent from Delmau, the last surviving member of the Aksumite royal dynasty, as well as the biblical king Solomon, overthrew the Zagwe dynasty and, again, depending on who you believe, either established or restored the Solomonic dynasty's control over Ethiopia in the 13th century. And, well, a lot has changed since then. So, yeah, that's how we get from Aksum to Ethiopia, in, like, a really generalistic, summed-up way that contained, like, five different podcast seasons in it. Anyways, now let's get into some listener questions, because you guys sent in some really good ones. So, thanks to everyone who submitted a question via email, Twitter, or Facebook DM. So, first, we have a question from Kevin Johnson. A name that might sound familiar from his name being always thanked at the end of the show for being one of the top patrons. You're the man, Kevin. Thanks for supporting the show. Anyways, he asked a few questions, actually. So, he first asked, In your opinion, why do you think there is so little knowledge of the Oxymite Empire within general world history? I noticed it from your podcast and some academic books in recent years that cover the history, but other than that, it's grossly overlooked, and I wonder why is that? Uh, yeah, I've also wondered why that is. I mean, there's the obvious factor that non-Western history is kind of overlooked in general, but I don't think that fully explains it. Because Oxumite history is on, like, a whole different level of obscurity. Like, even discussions of, like, African history rarely mention Axum, and, like, even discussions of Ethiopian history usually only briefly brush over as, like, oh yeah, this kingdom used to exist. So why is that? Um... Well, personally, i chalk it up to a few things. Like, Oxum is ancient, so it's not something that exists in historical, recent memory. So, usually people who get really into ancient history, I find, start with, like, some sort of pop historical content. And there's not a lot of pop historical content to get people interested in Oxumite history. And while their historical accuracy isn't usually all there, movies like Gladiator or The Last Samurai or Braveheart or other historical films often generate the initial interest for people to look further into the history that the movie is based on. And, of course, same goes for TV shows like Magnificent Century or Last Kingdom and, like, video games and stuff like that. And, well, Oxen hasn't really ever had anything like that. Uh, recently, there was this anime, of all things, called The Journey. I tweeted about it. It looks pretty sick, if not exactly historically accurate. And that came out, and it focuses on the story of the Year of the Elephant and features Abraha as an antagonist. And that's, like, the only pop historical source I can find... Uh, for oxum, like that would get people interested in it as like an initial thing you know Um, other than that uh, I think that uh, it can also in part be blamed on the political instability of Ethiopian Eritrea over the last few decades Um, so because of that political instability you can't really send in like large archaeological teams right and you can't really excavate and so there's not a lot of new archaeological discoveries that can provoke new interest um, so yeah, I think, I'd say those are the two main reasons why it's really obscure. Also from Kevin, the next question is, uh, what was the precise relationship that Aksum had with the Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, and ancient China? Just curious, what were the contacts and connections that Aksum had with these global powers? Uh, great question. I'm going to start with the end of this question, with China, because it's pretty straightforward. As for relations between China and Oxum, they're basically non-existent, at least according to present knowledge. There's some evidence of indirect trade between the two societies, like there's some evidence of, like, silk passing through East Africa at a time when it wasn't really available anywhere else other than China, um, but there are no records of direct contact between China and oxen uh, The closest we'll really get to that is that there's a Chinese biography of the Prophet Muhammad which mentions, in passing, an Aksumite king by the name of Saifu, and Saifu, this figure's, like, really puzzled historians, but... However, most historians seem to agree that Saifu is just another name for Arma or Ella Amidas, and the biography doesn't provide many details about him that we didn't already know. Um, Rome, however, is a completely different story. There's tons of contact between the two. Um, throughout the season, we've seen Rome and Oxum interact in numerous ways. Obviously, the two states enjoyed commercial ties for about as long as Oxumite hegemony over East Africa, with much of the Roman incense and ivory demand being satisfied by Oxumite merchants. And, of course, the two states, after the conversion of Oxum to Christianity and after the later conversion of Rome to Christianity, they really enjoyed close religious ties. Of course, this sort of ties into your next question, but many of the most important religious figures in Ethiopian Christianity, including Fermentius and the Nine Saints, came out of the Roman Empire. And the opposite's kind of true as well. I didn't mention it on the show There was this man named Moses the Black, or sometimes called Abba Moses the Ethiopian, who was this really important figure in 4th century Roman Egypt. Uh, He was, like, a former criminal from somewhere in Africa. Most people speculate Oxum, but I've also heard Nubia or, like, southern Egypt. But Oxum is the most distinct possibility from what I've heard. And he embraced Christianity and turned away from his life of crime and became a really famous saint. He's most famous for his advocacy of non-violence and running Christian colonies in the western Egyptian desert, which is, you know, interesting because, you know, this was a region that was pretty late to catch up to Christianity because it's so isolated, so he did a lot of work in uh, establishing Christian tradition in the Egyptian desert at the time. Um, the two states also had something of a military alliance during the 5th and 6th centuries. If you remember back to the show, the Roman Emperor Justin sent ships to support the Oxmite invasion of Himyar, while Abraha raided Persian territories to support a Roman war against Sassanid Persia. However, ultimately, Oxmite interaction with Rome essentially ended with Rome's loss of Egypt to the Islamic Caliphate in the 7th century, which, you know, geographically severed any sort of connection that they could have had, and made any cultivation of an alliance from there kind of inconvenient. Um, Finally, he asks, So, Ethiopia was the third or fourth state in history to adopt Christianity. Are there any revered Christian saints that come from Ethiopia? Uh... Well, usually I hear people say that it was the first or second, uh, With usually most people assume that Armenia happened like a little bit before it, but yeah, I usually hear people say that Ethiopia was the second country to convert, but yes, there are tons of revered saints that come from Ethiopia, and a few have even briefly come up on the show. Of course, there's Azana, Saizana and Caleb, each of whom were sainted after their deaths, St. Yared was a priest in 6th century Aksumite church who was famous for writing and standardizing the Ethiopian church's hymns. Um, there's also Tekla Haymanot, the Ethiopian church historian who served as our main historical source for the last episodes of the show. He's really famous for founding several important monasteries and was later sainted. Uh, in later periods, um, there's just a ton of them. It starts to get to the point where I couldn't even begin trying to cover them all. Uh, in later periods, probably the most important saint from Ethiopia is Enbakom, who was a 15th-century Yemeni convert who worked extensively to translate foreign Christian texts into Giz and update the Ethiopian church's theology. Uh, but there's a ton. Like, there's Ethiopian saints from, like, the 20th century. I couldn't even begin to cover them all here. All right, so uh, thanks for the questions, Kevin. Now we've got two from a listener named Setya. Setia asks, First, the Aksumite expansion had been focusing towards the Arabian Peninsula. I was wondering, why didn't the Aksumites try to expand that much to other parts of the continent? maybe towards the Horn of Africa or conquering more parts of the Nile, like Sudan? Uh, this is a really good question, Setia. Now, Aksum did try to expand to other parts of the continents a bit. Uh, Godarot's campaigns in northern Ethiopia, Azana's war in Nubia, and Degnishan's campaigns throughout the Horn of Africa, are at least some examples of Aksum's expansion in East Africa. And certainly during the back end of the empire, there's this sort of shift away from Arabia and more towards concern with East Africa itself as trade and international affairs become less important compared to just running a pretty standard agrarian economy. Uh, But yeah, it is kind of weird that most of the important Occamite military expeditions take place across the Red Sea and not in Africa. So, why? Well, I would argue that it came down mostly to economics and geography, as well as the ways that they overlap. In terms of geography, controlling both Yemen and Ethiopia would allow the Aksumites uh, to completely control both sides of the Bab al-Nandeb, which is the uh, short little section of ocean that connects the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. And if they control this, it basically means that they can ensure that any ships that sail between India, Egypt, Persia, or Southern Africa would be subject to Aksumite taxes. Additionally, Yemen and the northern Ethiopian highlands are two of the only places in the world where certain types of incense-producing trees could be grown. at at least at the time, meaning that controlling both regions would provide a near monopoly over this valuable resource. So between the potential economic benefits of an incense monopoly and a monopoly over control of the Southern Red Sea, it's easy to see why Oxumite rulers were so concerned with conquering territories in Arabia rather than in East Africa. Uh, Thanks for the question. Uh, Suchit also asks, I'm probably missing or forgetting about it, but do we know what was Oxum's staple food? Was it wheat or something else? And do we know whether their agricultural techniques were imported from places like Egypt or if there was a method unique to the region? Uh, Alright, uh, good question. The staple food of Oxum and Ethiopia to this day is teff. Teff is a type of grain that's pretty similar to wheat and is the staple food of Ethiopia. Um, it's usually either used to make beer or this type of bread called injera. And is kind of strange if you didn't grow up with it, but it's definitely worth trying. It Imagine, like, if someone took sourdough bread, didn't leaven it, and then stretched it really thin to the point that it looked more like a paper towel or, like, a bandage than bread. I'm not making this sound very appealing, but I swear to God it's really good. I was recently lucky enough to go to a trip to D.C., which is the city with the largest uh, Ethiopian diaspora in the U.S., and there was this uh, restaurant, it's actually called Enjera, in- with an E. And they had some, like, ridiculously good injera. Um It was, if you're ever in D.C., go try that place, it's ridiculously good. And if by chance anyone who works at Injera is listening to this, hello, your food is delicious, um, I guess. Um, sorry, if you couldn't tell, I was a little hungry when I wrote that answer. But yeah, regarding agricultural techniques... I don't know of any imported from Egypt in particular. I know that pre oxumite Ethiopian cities often used some southern Arabian methods of water regulation, namely like the construction of large dams. I'm not aware of any evidence, at least, that this persisted into the Oxumite period. And it kind of makes sense that not many practices were imported from Egypt or Arabia, right? Like, the climate of the Ethiopian highlands is really different from the riverbanks of Egypt or the dry scrublands of Yemen, so... You need different types of irrigation and crop management in order to farm there most efficiently. It's a lot wetter in Ethiopia, for example, and it's a lot more seasonal. Like, uh, you get monsoon rains that are just like, you don't get anything like that in Egypt or even Arabia. So, yeah, uh, you would need a different system. And to my knowledge, the farming system or the agricultural system that was used traditionally in Ethiopia is pretty unique to the region. So for our final question, Nathan asked, I'd like to know about the languages both written and spoken of Aksum. Was there a lingua franca, and does it have any direct modern linguistic descendants? Was their writing system unique or based on a Near Eastern or Egyptian model? Thanks for the question, Nathan. So language in the Aksumite empire is a really interesting predicament, and it's totally something worth studying. Um, Regarding the spoken languages of the people throughout the empire, it varied a lot by region and by era. In the northern cities of the empire, including Aksum itself, the primary language of conversation and writing was Gez, which is a Semitic language indigenous to northern Ethiopia. In writing, Gez used a unique script that has since been used to write many of the modern languages of Ethiopia. If you look at, like, modern-day Amharic or Tigrinya, like, you'll see that script that is Gez. Sort of like how English uses the Latin script. Now, the Gez writing system is based on an ancient Southern Arabian writing system, which, if you go back far enough, is itself a descendant of Egyptian hieroglyphs. So, I guess, technically, if you go back really far, it is based on both a Near Eastern and an Egyptian model, because the Near Eastern model is based on the Egyptian model of writing. So, yeah, like, if you go back really far, then yes. Um, But yeah, its most direct relative would be the writing of southern Arabia, which isn't like the modern Arabic script, it's a unique thing. In terms of modern linguistic descendants, classical Giez doesn't have any direct descendants. Um, But it does have a lot of indirect descendants, and it's left an impact on many contemporary languages. The closest thing to a direct descendant are the Semitic languages of the northern highlands, namely Tigrinya and also Dahalik which is spoken in the Dalek Islands. Yeah, in these languages, Gez vocabulary is pretty pronounced. It's like two-thirds or more of the uh, vocabulary in Tigrinya comes from Gez. And to a lesser extent, some Gez vocabulary also persists in other Ethiopian languages that exist in the Aksumite Empire, like Amharic, Aga, and Harari. Uh, While the Gez language isn't spoken commonly today, it is still around, like people still speak it as a liturgical language in Ethiopian and Eritrean Christianity and Beta Israelite Judaism, sort of like how the Catholic Church still uses Latin. Oh, and of course, outside of the cities in the north, people usually spoke the uh, lo- whatever local language, including the ancestors of the previously mentioned Amharic Aga and Harari. Um, so yeah, basically, Gez was the lingua franca of the empire, you could say. However, foreign visitors usually didn't speak Gez or a local language, they would just continue to speak their native tongue. So, especially in the empire's main port city of Adulis, it was common to hear not only Gez, but also Greek, Persian, and Arabian and Indian languages from merchants and visitors. In fact, many of the empire's early proclamations are written in multiple languages, which reflects the multilingual nature of life in the cosmopolitan city of Adulis. So, to sum up in a more coherent way, uh, the lingua franca of the Aksumite empire was Gez, an indigenous language that was strongly influenced by the writing systems of southern Arabia. However, if you took a trip back in time to ancient Aksum, you'd probably see and hear some other languages too, like Greek and Persian and uh, Sabaean and some Indian languages in the big cities, as well as early versions of Aga, Tigrinya, and Amharic in the countryside. Gies has no direct descendants, but has a strong influence on many Ethiopian languages, especially Tigrinya. And that's all I've got time to answer. If you submitted a question and it wasn't in here, it's probably because it was pretty similar to one of the ones that I answered. So I hope that like in an indirect way, I kind of got to the point that you were asking about. Anyways, that concludes our season on Oxum. I hope you guys are excited to refocus towards West Africa when we begin our new season on Ashanti this Monday. And, of course, thank you to everyone who helped in the creation of this episode. Thank you to my friend Devon for providing the male voices this season, as well as to my girlfriend for providing the voice of Gudit. Also, thanks to the numerous people who support the show on Patreon. The show wouldn't function without you. Thanks also to a certain professor for helping me with the research on some specific challenging issues on this podcast. I really appreciate you going out of your way to do that. Oh, and of course, special thanks to the top patrons who pledge at $10 or more each month. Raul Kalakia, Ayo Fagbamieh, Aaron L, and Kevin Johnson. Thank you so much.